Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Based on a crucial part of its preparation, it's safe to say you should know a New York sour when you see one. Only, that's not entirely true, listener. You see, this red wine-topped whiskey sour goes by multiple preparations in modern mixology, which is a strange position to find itself in, given that a pretty definitive recipe has been around in print for over a century. Also strange is the fact that this drink has gone by many monikers over the years. And despite what we know it by today, its origin holds little or no ties to the Big Apple. Here to explore the New York Sour is our official Five Boroughs cocktail correspondent, the legendary bartender, consultant, and singer-songwriter Frank Kayafa. These days, Frank works as the Spirits Portfolio Director for Banville Wine Merchants. But you may also be familiar with his work as an author, having published the Waldorf Astoria Bar Book in 2016. And if you're a big city classic cocktail enthusiast and don't know that one, listener, well, you should probably check out the link in our description. But back to the business at hand. It's claret snaps, continental sours, and for the next half an hour-ish, it's the Cocktail College Podcast. We've gone to him before as our Five Boroughs cocktail correspondent. Today, listener, he returns to cover the whole damn town, or even the state. It's Frank Kayaf, everybody. Frank, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. And, you know, I find it interesting that not only are we setting our sights once again on the old Grand Manzana, the Big Apple, but we're bringing orange juice back into the mix. What a pleasant coincidence. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not too often that we get that over here at Cocktail College. Yeah. I mean, uh, people hate on the orange. (laughs) So it's the orange juice in the Big Apple. It's the New York Sour, uh, Frank, off the bat elevator pitch what do you if someone asks you what is a new york sour i've never come across it before what is this cocktail a whiskey sour with a um, red wine float whiskey sour red wine float it's a historic one it's one that maybe has found more fame and fans in recent years compared to uh decades gone by i want to get your take on that i want to hear about your your experiences with it you know working at um your storied places that you have but let's get into the history first. You mentioned, uh, you know, fixes, uh, sours, all that stuff. So this is, of course, a sour. Where does the story of the New York sour begin, in your opinion? Well, going all the way back, it's probably the punch, right, I would say. Uh, these are all mini punches at the end of the day. Fixes, sours, daisies, on and on. And uh, with that, with the shrinking of the punch bowl into the glass came uh, variations on the theme. The fixes kind of kept the uh, spirit, sugar, sour, you know, bit and added fruit from the punch. And the sour uh, disregarded the fruit. And that was probably the main difference for a decade or two. And then ice became the defining ingredient that separated the two, whereas the fix would have some kind of pebbled ice, an offshoot then of the julep. It gets kind of murky. All this the, evolution. Yes. Um, but sours, probably 1850s sours come along. Yes. Uh, this thing comes around a little later, 1880s by most accounts. Is that right? Right. And uh, in Chicago, of all places. <laughs> you know, I'll tell a story. Um, after the Waldorf, I was brought on to the Lexington Hotel, another Art Deco two blocks away. 
And uh, I was the director of food and beverage there and the opening bar, the staying room. And they had a uh, New York sour on the menu. And I was like, strike that. It's a continental sour. I just, <laughs> just to kick up dust. Just to, so, so tell us what you're alluding to there, because yeah, definitely first recorded, I think, um, yeah, 18, 1883, yeah. I think. Almost 140 years ago to the day, as I was looking this up. Oh, very good. More than me. I uh, I do know that it came from, oh, I don't know, but it's common knowledge that uh, it started in Chicago with a uh, barman there and the claret snap, and that's the flourish of snapping the wine bottle away. Claret and, being the popular uh, word for red wine. Bordeaux, mm-hmm. typically. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll get to that later on, I guess. And uh, yeah, so, uh, and then it grew from popularity. It became, uh, because it was a whiskey sour, it was a southern Sour uh, Brunswick from the then it made it to New York the Hotel Brunswick which was right down the block the Brunswick building replaced the Brunswick Hotel on Twenty Fifth and Fifth so maybe. right around just three blocks from where we are today. yeah crazy figure that one out for yourselves listener where our offices might be <laughs> oh yes <laughs> um, so those names Claret Snap another one and then not to be forgotten the fellas at the Old Waldorf. Uh, claimed it for themselves as the Waldorf Sour. The Waldorf Sour, very nice, very yes. nice. So anything with a uh, red wine uh, float became uh, proprietary, thinking no one ever thought of it before. Mm-hmm. And I think I read that the, that the name New York Sour became popular or was popularized by Boston. Yeah, the um, and then, well, its first arrival in Prince came from the... Uh, well, there were two. It was a whiskey sour in 1900, and then uh, in the uh, old, what is that? Mr. Boston's Mr. Guide. Mr. Boston's Guide. Yeah. That was the first New York sour with the red wine float uh, post-prohibition. Interesting there, based upon our sports rivalries, you know, or just rivalry in general between Boston and New York. But okay, they, they, they're they giving us credit here for, for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> and what does this drink comprise of, I mean, you've basically gone through most of the ingredients, but but in your mind, what does this drink comprise of ingredient-wise? Well, it's your, it's your, to me, it's your classic 2-1-1, right? two-part spirit, one-part uh, sour, one-part sweet. I mean, then you can adjust accordingly based on your ingredients that you're using, and uh, you take it from there. Shake it, strain it, fresh ice, no mm-hmm. ice. That's your daiquiri, your margarita, your the sidecar, template. Cosmo. <laughs> Pisco sour. <laughs> There's a few aspects of this drink, though, that I do want to get into. Uh, so we've covered the, the the you know the history there. We've covered the various different names. Uh, I mentioned before as well the float. What is the float doing in this drink? What do you think the float is bringing to this drink? To me, the most important thing. There's two things. One is the drying out in the first sip, right? And if it's done correctly, it's so thin. It's simply the world, one of the world's best garnishes, right, garnishes. If it's laid correctly, it's an unbelievable sight, mm-hmm. especially in a footed old school. I guess today they use the glasses for Irish coffees, right, the footed sour glass from years ago. Oh, nice. So that's going to be what, like a, uh, a kind of not quite as broad a diameter on that glass, so even a small float right. is going to look larger. You're going to get that layered effect. Really, I mean, it's no more than it's like a quarter inch, a half an inch. It's the tiniest strip of red 
across the top of the drink that makes all the difference. And a drying effect. Right. So, to me, because, you know, a Claret Snap, you're using Bordeaux, maybe a Tuscan blend, something like that. Uh, certainly old world, I'd stick to just to keep with the theme of the of the era. Mm-hmm. And here's a little technical one for you. If you're just adding that as a final ingredient, obviously the red wine's not making its way into the shaker with ice. Is there any danger here that that is going to add a bit of a, a a warmer temperature to the drink? Do you, are you worried about that? Are you keeping a red wine in the fridge? I've never worried about it, <laughs> really. Never? I never did. No, never did. It's a great point, but I never did. I, I mean, think- it's so tight. If it's done right, if you look on the internet and you'll see a myriad of versions, some of them are half the drink. I've seen one three quarters. Right. So that's not what you're going for. You're going for an elegant layer. And like I said, if you think of it for what it is or what it was supposed to be, a garnish, you can't go wrong. Can you talk us through that float as a technique and how to perfect that and how not to end up sinking essentially the red wine into the cocktail? Slowly, very slowly is the key, really. And off a spoon or back of a spoon is probably, so you want to kind of like rain it down Mm -hmm. a little bit as opposed to pouring it straight in. Are you trying to get that spoon as close as possible to the surface of the drink, or is at it- first, you yeah. know, you get, it's funny how better you get at it as time goes on. I probably haven't even thought about it. I did, I've made a few, you know, more than a few in my day, but uh, I probably wouldn't even think about it if it wasn't for this conversation, you know. Because mm-hmm. I do think that is a technique that people worry about especially amateur bartenders, but home bartender enthusiasts. It's something to... I think like anything else, it gets better with practice, right? Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the closer you are to the drink... Right, yes. Would more, be easier. More Would be better to control, right? Mm-hmm. And raining it down, like I said. and not, Back of the spoon. Right. Get that, get that liquid kind of uh, larger surface area, as we always like to uh, think about with these things. I mean, after two, you should have it down. <laughs> All right. Challenge accepted on that one. <laughs> Um, I mentioned earlier that it seems, and I, you know, look, I wasn't around in the 1880s or the 1930s Me or whatever. Either. Despite popular belief, maybe. <laughs> it does seem to be, though, by most accounts, that it never really was a drink that um, that was that popular back then. You know, these these prohibition or pre-prohibition classics. But it does seem like this was one that did get taken up, picked up to some extent by the cocktail renaissance. Was that your experience of working in the industry at the time? Yes, but not right away. It was probably like later on, the second wave, right? The first wave, I like to think, obviously, the old-fashioned. And for some reason, I include in my mind the aviation back in that first round. In the first wave. Right. As something, oh, wow, look at this. But uh, the New York Sour was probably a little later on for me, from what I remember. It's strictly going by memory Mm -hmm. and what I seen in other bars and what we did. Uh, Certainly, it didn't make the menu... At Peacock Alley right away, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And Maybe 9, 10. Any notable bars that you remember from the time kind of adopting it? I read online um, Flatiron Room, Julie Reiner, uh, yeah. friend of the show. want to give her the shout out there if it's true that, you know, folks. Actually, you know, I read that was in Robert Simonson's um, newsletter, Substack. Right. I think he wrote about this in, in August, so thanks for that, Robert. But yeah, by, by Robert's accounts, Julie was one of the... I'm sure Audrey yeah, yeah. had one. Mm-hmm. At the Pegu Club, 
I, I somehow remember that, mm-hmm. being wowed. Well, wow, they brought this back, too. In that nice era as well where you could appreciate a drink and a drink's visual appeal without immediately having to pull your phone out and stick the thing on Instagram. There's that, too. <laughs> that was great. Also, speaking of that now, you know, reading that at, at entry, But I think, uh, just cutting back into that, that's what made some of these drinks and, in general, the whole cocktail culture grow was word of mouth without all the photos. We have to go there to see what this is about, to taste this drink without the luxury of a photograph of... Then you can you know, somehow piece it together in your mind what you think it'll taste like. Seeing it in person, yeah. Right. That, dr- that drove people going to the bars to check this whole scene out. You mentioned the aviation. I think that's an interesting one. Do you think part of that, we've never actually covered that drink on this show. I find it to be a polarizing one. That's great. Why? We did the Bronx. <laughs> but I, Well, yeah, exactly. I think we're just saving that one, I you think, know, in our back pocket. I think the only one above the Bronx is the aviation. Of most polarizing drinks. Right. Do you think that that one made it into that first wave that you spoke about because of how hard it was to get creme de violette? Yes, but now that you put it that way, it was probably toward the beginning of the second wave where the aviation came on because I remember I tried to revive a lot of cocktails and we couldn't get maraschino. Mm-hmm. If it was, it was on allocation and it ran out. Uh, creme de violette for sure came later. So I would say, thinking back, that's probably, the dates mm-hmm. get all kind of jumbled <laughs> if you ask me. But I, you get the idea of what it was. Yeah, it was around that period and if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm hoping this, I think this is written out there somewhere online, you can find it, but um, Eric Alperin was telling me that they used to have a milk and honey spec, so they would buy the creme de violette, but to make it sort of less potent, they would, I don't know, dilute it down with things. And I say dilute with air quotes here, because I think there's vodka and stuff involved just to help use it as an ingredient, but maybe take away some of the pungency of that distinct flavor that it has. Yeah, and uh, once those things were, like not creme de violette, but maraschino, for instance, if you ran out, it could be a month or two before you got it. So um, if you committed to something with it on the menu or a weekly special or however you did it, uh, if you ran out, I remember distinctly making our own maraschino with like cherry eau de vie and simple syrup and a couple of spices, and boom, we had a maraschino, homemade maraschino all of a sudden instead of a name brand. <laughs> Just like some folks are trying to do these days with chartreuse. But we did it out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Arguably also the case at, at, at the moment, or at least for that particular product. Right. Um, another thing of uh, from Robert's piece, and I think he wrote about it for the Times now, thinking about this too. Um, Robert said, and, and I trust Robert's word on this because he's a very well-traveled drinker um, and knowledgeable one, His assertion was that it seems like these days there is a New York sour variation or drinks with a float, float sour kind of thing going on, that this is a trend, that this is happening at a lot of bars. Um, Maybe I'm drinking too many martinis or drinking off menu too often. It's not something I've noticed, but I'm curious to hear if that's something you've seen too. No, I haven't. When you just mentioned it to me cold, nothing came to mind. No. Yeah, I mean, but Robert... He's out every night of the week. <laughs> Seasoned drinker. Yes. And writer. And, um, and adventurous. <laughs> definitely. Uh, the other one I have down here, because I have three things. That I Is think... this going to turn the Pooh's Cafes? Just... No. Okay, just no. let me know. Uh, no, but we're going to make you 
make one after we get off here. We've got a camera set up. You can see outside the studio here. You might be wondering what they're about to film. The easiest one is the little beer, right? What's the little beer? It's a creme de cacao and a heavy cream. And it's a mini Guinness. I prefer the baby Guinness. Right. Kahlua and Bailey's. There you go. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. I did the pre-pro version. (laughs) No, what I was going to say is there's three aspects to this drink that I think make it really noteworthy because we are, of course, we're going to go into the ingredients in a bit, as we always do, but some of those ingredients, lemon juice, simple syrup, regular listeners of Cocktail College have heard, you know, fresh is best enough and the relative merits of rich versus simple. So we might dance across some of those. We'll get into the bourbon and the red wine. But... Right. Right. Okay. We'll just leave that dangling there as a little teaser. Second thing I want to add here, egg white or no egg white? Because we're seeing both. What's your opinion? In a sour, standard sour, egg white is fine. If you're going for the best uh, garnish, red wine garnish, it doesn't work with an egg white. Uh, It just gets murky and muddy. Taste-wise, still it's neither here nor there. It's fine if you like it creamier or whatever, but you're not getting that zip of the, the tannin of the wine as head-on as you would without the egg white. Because you would do what? You would, yeah, you would shake up the drink. So As a sour. Yeah. With, as with a egg shower, white. Yeah. Right? And then pour it in your glass of choice. You know how egg white became popular as the New York sour? It allowed the wine to float easier, I guess, for the novice, right? Because now it was sturdier. Interesting. I still don't, yeah, that just to me, I don't really understand what it's bringing to the drink beyond maybe another visual aspect. Well, a sour with egg white is delicious, right? So there's that. So if you figure, I'm going to make it even more delicious and put a red wine float on top of it. So you're just adding, adding Mm -hmm. it. But sometimes that doesn't, you know, equate to the best tasting cocktail or visual, certainly. And like you said, you don't get that immediate juxtaposition of the grip of the wine against the uh, sweet and sour sour of the sour yeah all right that's it we're getting rid of our eggs here glad we've conquered that one uh third and final one here that i i think is very notable about this drink most of the photos i see online most of the places i see doing it are serving on the rocks in a rocks glass which again classic traditional whiskey sour i'm into it i get it not sure that's what I want for the New York sour. Again, to have that real visual pop. What's your thinking? Uh, up is traditional for sure, without ice. With ice and the red wine float, if the, if the ice is right, it's probably fine. But you're not getting that clean line across the top. It's more in line taste-wise. So that, if you want me to rank them, it would be uh, up in a footed uh, stem glass with a red wine float. Second, then the modern version is probably the old-fashioned glass with large ice and the red wine float. And third would be the egg, old-fashioned glass, (laughs) red wine float, which is the murky, muddy. Yeah. So, you know. This looks rubbish. Um, What is the, what do you think the ice and the the, the old-fashioned style glass or the rocks glass, what do you think it's bringing to the cocktail? Like, what is the argument to be made for it? Longevity. It's probably uh, viewed as a summer drink and ice pairs naturally for a summer drink. That's, That's a great it. point, yeah. If you have it without ice, it's probably more of a year-round mm-hmm. sipper. But uh, with ice, it's your summer pleaser. My old pal John Clark Gennetti, or Gennetti, uh up there in New Haven with his bar Crown, 116 Crown, made the best New York sour I've ever had in my life. 
And he served that sucker in a massive martini-style glass, like the ones you'll enjoy at Old King Cole Martini at uh, Maison Premier. Uh, I think I might even have a photo of it on my Instagram, so you can go and check that out. Thing just looked amazing. It was it was this massive cocktail. The the separation between wine and stuff was there, and I'm just like, yeah, this is it. This is my. This is where I'm going. That's where I'm. That's where I'm playing my hand. You know. Well, there's plenty of red wine on the conical <laughs> uh, martini glass. Yeah, you are right. And, and I tell you what, John's a man who knows his red wine as well. So I wanted to give John a shout out. And by the way, he did cover for us all those years ago uh, the martini episode number three of the podcast. So go check it out. Hear John speak there. Um, all right, Frank. Let's bring it back to ingredients. Uh, I put bourbon down here. You quickly corrected me there. American whiskey at large. You said rye. Yeah, I think that was the predominant uh, grain spirit of the day when it would be making its uh, debut. Civil War era, right? Cities, uh, near large cities, they would get Pennsylvania rye, Maryland rye, and uh, that's what I think would be going on. Mm -hmm. Probably later, uh, bourbon came into the mix. So traditionally rye, for your palate, also, rye makes for a better version I, of the drink? I do, and I also, I'll add this. I like like lower-proof whiskeys in sours because okay. they're more sessionable. You're not supposed to have one and be bowled over. It's not a martini, you know? So having your 80-proof or 86-proof, but nothing more than that, I think. And that's why rye is even better, too, because it's uh, spicier, it has a spine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't rely so much on on alcohol to hold up in cocktails, especially if you have that spice. Exactly. Any particular style or brands, you don't need to call any out, but style, you know, we've seen a lot, especially post-Renaissance, we saw a proliferation of Kentucky-style rye, that 51% mash bill. Then we moved into the MGP-style 95.5. Now I think we're seeing a lot of everything in between. Right. And I don't know, I guess personal preference, I would go for more rye-heavy so that you don't have to rely on the alcohol content as much. But I'm sure if you're using low-proof whiskey and you have your second one, you're not going to worry about what brand you use. <laughs> we do like to dial into the details, though. So as a rule of thumb there, rye, 86 proof, that's the ideal for you for this one. And if not, check out a high rye bourbon. Yes. Maybe 90 proof, maybe just a little bit more in the booze, or not if you're trying to session these. Right. Old school, high ride bourbon can certainly work. Mm -hmm. uh, anything you want to add to our assertion there about lemon juice, fresh is best? Is there anything else you want to add, bring to the conversation about lemon juice? Fresh is best. I'll stick with that. To tell you the truth, there's no substitution. Simple syrup? Any thoughts? You know, if I was making these pre-pro style, I would use powdered sugar or granulated sugar to go full on for the era. But then you, a little water needs to be added as well in the shake, I think, to uh, replicate this, the... The effect of right. that. If you were doing that, roughly how much? Bar spoon? Yeah. Well, that's to taste too, right? That's I to mean, taste, yeah. Difficult once you've shaken it, though. Right. That's a good question. I would say le uh, le a little less than a teaspoon to no, start. Perfect. A bar spoon is not really a, uh, a unit of measure like both... <laughs> Come out with the gray coons spoon. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, next ingredient would be red wine, apart from something we teased earlier, right up there in the intro. Orange juice. The original recipe I saw with this, 
And you want to talk about exact measurements. I think in the Oxford Companion, they have the original recipe as having seven milliliters of orange juice. What's going on there? I guess it adds a sweetness to the original that they probably, if you will, maybe that took the place of the water for the sugar, right? Added a little something different. Later versions had, what, pineapple syrups and all sours in general. So there was experimentation going on. I think that was one version or a couple versions. And I, in a modern version, I've never seen it really. Mm-hmm. You? Never. And, and why would... I, it's not a juice, a common citrus that people have behind the bar. So it makes sense that people would just be like, are we going to keep this on and you know, well, keep funny, this on hand? In this instance, it brings to the table what it doesn't have, right? It's maligned because it doesn't have a spine, right? And you're bringing it into this drink because... You have enough of that, and now you want the uh, sugar quarter. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So red wine float, you mentioned uh, kind of old world, maybe Bordeaux being the classic. You mentioned claret there. But we do also, I, I think that, you know, oftentimes in the UK at least, uh, claret was just used as a catch-all for all red wine. But um, any particular favorites for you? Anything that stands out? Also, Rioja's work, Spanish wines, I kind of like those through the years. I mean, only thing I wouldn't try to float, only because it's thinner in body, is Pinot Noir and the like, you know? So that would be kind of, it would disappear, dependent, brand dependent, of course. But, you know, don't make your job harder than it has to be. Yeah, I do think that Rioja has a great call there as well. Just, um, I mean, if you want to get real geeky, the the marriage of the American oak that they like to use over there. And the American oak that we have in our bourbon and our rye. If you try hard enough, you can connect anything together that's just pure coincidence, you know? Right. Luck. (laughs) And so you said, again, just you're looking for a real thin float of red wine, quarter inch max. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Any other thoughts on the ingredients there before we get into preparation? Uh, No, I think we're good. Okay. Okay. Talk us through the preparation now. And I'm going to ask you... To commit to the only thing I would say is that I gave you the loose two one one, and that's like in my mind how I negotiate sours. But of course, if it's less spirit, you adjust for less sugar. If you're using a uh, two to one simple syrup, you're not going to use a whole ounce. All of these things play a part to those out there, and uh, I just wanted to clarify. And that's why we're going to get you to commit to a recipe now. We're Don't come at you. me. <laughs> Can you walk us through it, Frank, though? Your preparation of this drink start to finish. I'm going to ask you to commit to some of those things. And also, yeah, a spec on this one as if you were making it here in the studio today. Sure. Two ounces of even 86 proof rye. Um, I would go three quarter ounce simple syrup one to one and three quarter ounce lemon juice and start there into the mixer. I shake up in the footed glass, and then the red wine float. Fantastic. And the foot glass, you said that one, you know, the Irish coffee one. Is this, is this going to have a handle on it? No, not the handle. Oh, no, no. You know, <laughs> okay. Come on. <laughs> You're confusing me here. I just tried to get it so the folks could visualize it easier. And then float of red wine. We talked through the technique there. Yes. No and other garnish? No, not at all. You can't uh, spray a lemon peel. It will not go with the, it uh, will not pair with the red wine. Fantastic. Um, Frank, any other thoughts on the on the New York Sour today before we finish with our five recurring questions, your second set of five questions, actually? No, I think uh, I'll add it to the website if I think of anything else. And I'll tell you this, you've made at least one listener very happy today because we do, you know, and, and this is an opportunity just to say to the listeners, we do read the emails, we do 
take on board the feedback. I think uh, some folks out there might have found it a little strange that we've gone down some slightly more obscure cocktail routes. Uh, War Days was maybe one that was mentioned that we've covered before we covered the New York Sour. But hey, I'm just saying we were just leaving these ones out there uh, for people to look forward to, much like the aviation. But we've made a listener very happy today, at least one. And you made myself very happy here, Frank. So let's do it. Let's head into this. I will say one thing. I don't like when people crap on the aviation or the Bronx. These are the drinks that without them, the whole, they brought, they in tow brought everything else, more or less. So, I mean, to each his own. Let people like what they want. Amen to that, brother. Amen. All right, Frank, question number one here for you today. Which spirits category are you currently most excited about from a personal or professional perspective? I think right now all things agave and agave adjacent. It's been a quite, in my new role at Panville uh, as a spirits portfolio director, uh, diving into um, areas that uh, were not as well known to me in the past and uh, learning along has been uh, a great learning experience and a nice uh, challenge mm-hmm. and tasting and learning all these uh, items have been has been great. Fantastic. Question number two here. What's the last drink or cocktail you had that really wowed you? And I know this is going to be a tough one because you're a man about town. Well, not really, because the one that stays with me is kind of related to me as well as uh, Estelle Bossy's uh, Alaska at uh, La Rock. That's always been uh, Tell us great. about that drink. Tell us about her specific preparation. Well, she kind of makes like a standard um, Alaska with gin and uh, yellow chartreuse, but she has her own floral tincture. Uh, I don't have the spec with me now, but you could look it up. I'm sure it's online somewhere. We want to give away those secrets. Well, she has. It's it's somewhere out there. Okay, but, so she's put that out there. Yeah, and uh, I'd also say um, there's a bar in Tribeca called the North Bar, and they do excellent drinks. Everything, you know, they're creating some nice items. There. A little shout-out for a local bar. Nice. Question number three. What's one book you would recommend that every alcohol and cocktail enthusiast should have a copy of. Enthusiast, I really like uh, Amanda Schuster's new book, Signature Cocktails, uh, even though I'm in it. <laughs> but that's not why. But uh, yeah, it's very good. It's in. It's a unique item. It's listed in chronological order. There's history there if you want it. There's photos there if you want it. It makes for a great uh, gift. Also, like, it's that kind of book. It covers a lot of ground. It's well presented. And for bartenders, I still go with uh, Gary's Joy and Mixology. I think that everyone should have Mm -hmm. to start. Wonderful choices right there. I know Amanda was working pretty hard, very hard on that one. I think over the pandemic, am I going to correct? Yes. A lot of work went into that one. Congratulations, Amanda. And that published, what, last year, I think? or oh, No, just recently. Yeah, what am I on about? A couple yeah. months ago. Yeah. Uh, didn't get invited to the launch party. That's mm-hmm. why. <laughs> uh, question number four. If you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role, Frank is a movie buff, which one would it be and who would you like to play? You know what came to mind first? At the end of Ghostbusters, after they knock off the Stay Puff Man, Bill Murray pops out of the sewer and he says, it's Miller time. (laughs) I'd like to do that. For some strange reason, I'm thinking you might not be the only one who said that I might be making no, that up. Really? But the phrase, the phrase reminds me because it makes me think of our friend Brian Miller every time that someone says, I might be making that up. But great scene. Well, Bill if Murray. you don't know, that was the uh, old beer commercial for Miller Beer. 
when the games would go yeah. on and the guy would say, it's Militon. <laughs> and uh, lost in translation, right? Every scene in there, he's great. Classic. Bill Murray gets his own category of drinks scenes devoted he did to the him. the same line. It's Suntory time. <laughs> <laughs> what next? Uh, it's White Claw time. Bill Murray, maybe. We'll see. Frank, final question for you here today. Which modern classic cocktail do you think is deserving of more recognition than it gets? The espresso martini. No, just kidding. (laughs) You know, I thought about it and I was like, I think all cocktails get the, sometimes cocktails don't get the attention they deserve. But if, if the question is which cocktail that already gets attention deserves more, probably none. If you ask me, if you're getting attention already, it's best spent somewhere else if we're going to shine a new light Mm -hmm. on it. It's funny, I uh, saw the other day, I did um, the original beverage program for the M Social after the pandemic, and I had a New York-themed cocktail list. And one of the things I did was a Dr. Brown celery soda with uh, tequila or mezcal, I forgot what it was. And then last week I saw on the internet somewhere, somebody did it. I'm like, if you hang around long enough, it all comes back. (laughs) (laughs) That is why you're our New York Five Boroughs drink correspondent, Frank. Um, Got some homework for you. Next time we see you, trying to get to the bottom of the mystery of what is the Staten Island cocktail? Because we know where the Bronx is. We know where a Manhattan is, a Queens, a Brooklyn. No one's nailed down to Staten Island just yet. I'll get on that. Fantastic. Frank? Cheers and thanks again. Thank you. It's always been great. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vine Pair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>